Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. Well, we're going to cover Samson and Ruth this morning, okay? <laughs> Those are two very different individuals, right? Very, very different. Samson with his strength. By the way, I don't know that Samson looked that strong. I mean, why would they ask him where does he get his strength from if he was like, you know, 6'10", 400 pounds with 2% body fat? You know what I'm saying? It doesn't make sense. I think they looked at him and thought, what a wimp. And then he did all the things that he did, and it was in the power of the Spirit of God. I think that he was strong because of Christ, because of God in him. It wasn't because of him. (laughs) It certainly wasn't his physical attributes, I don't believe. But we're going to look at Samson. We're going to look at Ruth. And let me just frame it this way for you this morning. God is always at work regardless of what we're able to do, what we're able to see or understand. Think about that. God's at work all around us, folks. In fact, somebody said once something to me that was very meaningful to me. When, when it seems like the Lord uh, is not doing anything, that's when he's doing the most. Think about that. Have you ever gone through a season in your life where you just felt like, where's God? Lord, where are you? Right? What are you doing? What's going on? And that's usually the time that the Lord is doing his deepest work. Not only in your own life, my life, but also in the lives of people around us. And the question is, do we believe that? Are we walking by faith in such a way that we're persuaded that regardless of what our senses tell us, regardless of what we can figure out mentally, God is at work all around us. The question is, are we walking with him? Are we following him? Do we trust him? Do we have to feel God in order to believe God? That's a pretty profound question when you really begin to think about it. Because the truth of the matter is, we believe God, we believe the truth of the word of God, regardless of whether we feel as if God's at work around us or not. We know that he is. Two things this morning as we look at Samson and Ruth. First of all, the Lord is always working on our behalf. And I love this, because Samson, if there's ever a picture of somebody that was really kind of uh, on the fence... An individual, as my father-in-law would say, is a mugwomp. His mug's on one side, his womp's on the other, right? (laughs) He is a mugwomp. And yet God used him in amazing ways. And the truth is, is God's always at work around us, but he's always working on our behalf. And we know that as believers, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him or are called according to his purposes. We know that God is always at work on our behalf. Even in the midst of difficult times, God is constantly working on our behalf. And secondly, as we look at this wonderful story, this love story uh, of Ruth and Boaz, the Lord is always working to accomplish his purposes. Oh, I love this. We go through all the depravity of the judges, right? Even Samson with all his stuff. You know, Delilah. We know Delilah, right? You've heard of Samson and Delilah. No question. But after all this stuff, you get into this story of Ruth during the time of the judges. And you get this beautiful picture of God working in the midst of Israel in order to do what he had promised to do to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, all the way through, which is to bring about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful, beautiful story this really is. 
So the first one, the Lord is always working on our behalf. Let me remind you of a few things about judges. Uh, first of all, there's a cycle of sin and restoration. We see this over and over again. And last week we looked at several of the judges as we kind of walked through the majority of the book, but there's always this cycle. There's always this pattern where there's sin and then there's servitude. God allows people to be raised up in order uh, to enslave, so to speak, Israel, not to put them down, but to draw them back to himself. They cry out to God and God is faithful and gracious in order to provide them salvation from their immediate danger and the, the enslavement that they've gone through. In Judges chapter 17, verse 6, and this is four times repeated, and really towards the latter part of the book, it's repeated even more. But in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now, folks, if that doesn't describe our time, I don't know what does. I just got back from Washington, D.C., and walking around and seeing all the different things and listening to all the different things and all the, all the stuff that's going on. Wow. Not only does the church need revival, we need revival. We need an awakening. We're desperate for it because only God can fix this. God is at work all around. And in Judges, we see this picture where everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes. It's a picture of compromise. It's a picture of accepting things that are not of God. And yet, in the midst of it, God's grace, God's faithfulness. And then there's these glimmers of God's people who are yielded to him, who are walking with him by faith. The Lord's always working on our behalf. Samson, in weakness... Strength. In weakness, strength. Judges chapter 13, verse 1. We begin this pattern of this cycle all over again. He says, Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Folks, here's the beginning of the pattern. Israel did what's evil in God's eyes. They didn't follow what the Lord wanted them to do. They had not cleaned out the land They had not done what God had asked them to do. They were not walking in obedience to the Lord. They had accepted the cultures around them, and they had even begun to worship the pagan gods, gods that are made out of stone, made by human hands. We know from what Paul says that these were demonic, and so they weren't worshiping the Lord. They're worshiping uh, foreign idols and foreign gods. Samson's father, we know, is named Manoah of the tribe of Dan. We do not know his mother's name, but we know that the angel of the Lord came to his mom and tells her that she is going to give birth to a son, that she is to abstain from strong drink, and that her son is to be a Nazarite. He is not to drink wine or strong drink. He's not to cut his hair. In Numbers chapter 6, verses 2 through 5, we get a description, or one of the places we get a description of a Nazarite. There are three things that are really uh, strike you as you read through that particular passage. They're not to drink alcohol, vinegar, or anything from the grapevine, including grapes, fresh or dried. Right? They're st- supposed to abstain completely from that. There, no razor should touch their head. They should not uh, in any way, shape, or form cut their head. And they're not to go near a dead person, including family members. If a family member died, they were not 
to go near the family member. So Samson is called to be a Nazarite. And this is the picture for him. He's to be set apart. He's to be holy unto God. He's to be a servant of the Lord. And he's to make sure in every sense that these things that we looked at in Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you can see it there too, that they are not to be a part of his life, indicating his commitment to God. Well, when we begin to look at the life of Samson, we get a really bit of a different picture, don't we? We begin to realize here's a guy who just seems to be around drink all the time. Here's a guy who seems to uh, be around things that are dead all the time. And later on, uh, we find that Delilah deceives him and we find that his hair is cut. He's a mugwump. He's always uh, playing the game and he pays for it. Well, an angel of the Lord came to Manoah's wife. And this is what's interesting, right? We don't know Manoah's wife. She must have been a godly woman. And tells her these things. Well, she goes and tells Manoah. And Manoah doesn't believe her. Now, I could, I could do a whole sermon on that one, right? <laughs> Women, right? <laughs> Y'all look at me. We won't do that. Got too much to cover this year. But the point of the matter is Manoah's wife tells Manoah, hey, angel came to me, said this is what's going to happen. He says, what? Well, tell the angel, tell him to come back. I want to hear it. And so the Lord is gracious. And he comes back and he meets uh, with Manoah's wife again, she goes and gets Manoah. He wants uh, to go and make sure that there's a feast for him. Uh, and he asks the angel of the Lord, what, what are we supposed to do? And I love this statement. And by the way, this is the uh, pre-incarnate Christ. This is the Lord uh, meeting with them. And in Judges chapter 13, verse 13, the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, let the woman pay attention to all that I said. In other words, hey, Manoah, listen to your wife. It's great. The Lord said that, by the way, right? That's important. So verse 15 in Judges 13, we find that he wants to prepare a young goat to eat. And the Lord says, well, prepare a burnt offering for me. And so they go about preparing the burnt offering. I think one of the interesting things is Manoah asks for his name. And the Lord replies in Judges 13, verse 18, says, The angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Now, the word wonderful means incomprehensible. Incomprehensible. If I told you my name, you wouldn't be able to understand it. Isn't that amazing? Praise God for Jesus. Amen? You start reading through John chapter 1, and you start realizing that the Lord Jesus Christ himself came to this earth so that we might understand a God that without Christ we would never be able to know, we wouldn't even perceive the correct identity of who he really is. Verses 19 through 20 of Judges 13, Manoah takes the young goat with the grain offering, offers it on the rock to the Lord. And the Lord performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. It came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. And when Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord standing there talking with Manoah. They sacrifice. They do the burnt offering with the goat. And the Lord evidently goes right into the flame and ascends into heaven right in front of them. And immediately they fall on their faces. They know, whoa, Manoah, I mean, can you imagine? His mind is already blown with what he's being told. And now he's literally scared to death. In verse 21, the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. The Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. 
The angel of the Lord. This is a Christophany, if you want to put it into fancy theological terms. It is uh, the pre-incarnate Christ making an appearance. We have this several times throughout the Old Testament. One of my favorites is when he appears uh, to to Joshua before they go into into Jericho. Remember that? And, And Joshua comes up to him and says, there's a man standing there with a sword. And he says, well, whose side are you on? What's the Lord's response? Neither. (laughs) The question is not whose side am I on. The question is, Joshua, are you on my side? Because I'm the captain of the host of the Lord's army, and I'm going to lead you. So we have these Christophanies that take place in the Old Testament. This is one of them. Manoah says to his wife in verse 22, we will surely die for we have seen God. And praise God for his godly wife, his wife says to him, if the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have let us hear things like this at this time. In other words, hey hubby, take a chill pill. <laughs> he appeared to us in order to let us know what he's going to do. Let's believe him and trust that he's going to accomplish these things. He's told us we're going to have a child and he's to be a Nazarite. This lady's obviously a godly woman. Can't you wait? Isn't it going to be fun to meet people like this in heaven? Be able to go up to her and say, oh, that's your name. You blessed us. Thank you for believing that the Lord is at work all the time, even when you didn't fully understand it. We're not given the details of Samson's childhood. We just immediately jump to the time where he's ready to get married. And what we find is that he wants to marry a Philistine girl. The Philistines have risen up. They are now in power. They're in authority. Why? Because Israel had sinned. God was using the Philistines in order to draw his people back to himself. They had been enslaved, so to speak, by the Philistines because they had embraced their culture. They had accepted the norms. And so God wants to use Samson in order to deal with this. Samson grows up. He sees a Philistine girl down in Timnah, and he wants her to be his wife. And I think it's really fascinating. His parents don't like this at all. They recognize this isn't what the law had said. This is exactly contrary to what the law had said. And they don't want him to do this. But it's an interesting statement in chapter 14, verse 2, where the Lord was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. God is always at work around us, folks. And there are times where we've got to be really careful to say that what we're doing is completely of God. In other words, we can, we can actually stumble and trip, and we can do things that are not completely of God, and yet God is still able to use it for his glory and honor. Thank the Lord for that. And that's exactly what's taking place here. The Lord is seeking for an occasion against the Philistines. So his parents go down with him to Timnah, where the girl lives. Evidently, they went in separate parties, because on the way down, a lion attacks Samson. Right? And we get this story, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I always thought this was so cool. I thought, man, can you imagine a big old lion coming at you and you just grab that sucker? I don't know how he did it. I don't know if he grabbed it by the mouth. Who knows how he did this, but the spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson and he tears this lion and kills it as if it were a young goat. Nothing to it. No problems. I want you to get a picture in your mind. Because we see this over and over again, this statement, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. The picture is that the Lord 
put on Samson like a garment of clothes. It's not that he just kind of went into Samson and suddenly Samson was energized. It's the Lord who is using Samson in order to accomplish what he wants. And he's using this vessel called Samson in order to accomplish it. So he kills the lion. The Lord comes upon him. He goes down. They begin to have a wedding feast. And Samson comes up with this riddle. And he tells all the, all the young men there, okay, so you're going to pay me, each of you, there was 30 evidently, you're going to pay me 30 changes of clothes if you can't figure out this riddle. And I will pay each of you through clothing if you figure it out. Well, after seven days... His wife is weeping. They tried to come to him and tried to get him to change it. They wouldn't do it. Comes to his wife, and his wife is just begging him and begging him and begging. Finally, on the seventh day, he tells her the secret of the riddle. She runs off, tells these young men. They then tell him, and it ticks him off. (laughs) So he goes down. Now, folks, this is not our day, right? This is not our age. We don't do this kind of thing, right? If you're at a wedding and you don't get what you want, please don't do this. All right? (laughs) He goes down and kills 30 Philistines, grabs their clothes and says, okay, fine. Here you go. If you hadn't plowed with my heifer, is the way he put it, you'd have never figured out this riddle, and you would have given me the clothing. So, fine. Here it is. And then, kind of in a sulky way, that's my reading into this, he goes back to his mom and dad's house. And leaves his wife. So his wife's dad goes, yeah, I guess he's gone. And gives his wife to marry the best man that was at Samson's wedding, who happens to be a Philistine, and marries her off. Well, Samson later on comes down. (laughs) and says, I want to spend some time with my wife. Now, folks, I don't get this. I really don't. I mean, this is one of those pictures that you go, What? You're married, but you're not married. You're married. You go back to your father and mother's house. Now you're going to come down and visit. So he comes down and he finds out, hey, where's my wife? And his father-in-law says, why? I didn't think you were pleased with her, so I gave her to your best man. So now he's really ticked off. Wouldn't you? I mean, that'd be crazy. So what does he do? Judges 14, 20, Samson's wife is given to his companion, who had been his uh, best man at his wedding. By the way, don't miss that. Don't miss that. You talk about accepting the culture, accepting the norm. Here's a Philistine that was his best man at his, at his wedding. It should never have been that way. Not to mention the fact that he was wanting to marry a Philistine woman. So he's enraged. What does he do? Well, there's all kinds of fields of wheat and I'm sure barley in that particular area. And he goes out, and you remember how many foxes he catches? 300. Now, folks, I can't even catch one. Forget this. Right? My brother, I was visiting my brother this last week, and he had gone, was it my brother? I don't remember. Somebody had gone camping, and they heard a fox screaming. Right? Yeah. Oh, Holland. Holland. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting the thing screwed up. Holland and her friend had gone out. I don't know what they were doing. They were studying somewhere at some place. And they caught on uh, video or tape, you know, 
Oral, you could hear this fox screaming in the background. And the reason they knew it is because they looked it up and they began, man, it's freaky. I mean, I'm not going to catch foxes. I don't want to catch foxes. God bless them. You're cute. You're wonderful. Stay 10 feet away. He catches 300 of them. And what does he do? He ties their tails together, puts a torch in the midst, lights them up. Well, what do you think those foxes did? (laughs) They didn't have a powwow. Hey, we got a problem here, brother. What should we do? No, they go booking through the fields and they light everything on fire. They burn all these crops down. The Philistines are going, who did this? And they found out Samson did it. So what do they do? They retaliate and kill Samson's wife and her father. They burn them. I mean, this is messed up stuff. So what does Samson do? Judges chapter 15, verse 8. He struck them ruthlessly with great slaughter. And he went down and lived in the cleft of the rock. Of Edom, just outside of Bethlehem in the hill country of Judah. At this point, the Philistines know they, they got a problem. I mean, Samson has become a thorn in their side. Remember, the Lord is seeking an occasion against the Philistines. So now Samson has really made himself odious, right? Uh, absolutely infamous, so to speak, with the Philistines. And what happens? The men of Judah, 3,000 of them, come to find out what Samson is up to. Because it's not just the Philistines that are having a problem. Now, those who are in Judah, who have been enslaved by the Philistines, the Israelites are having a problem. In Judges 15, 11, we're told this, Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you know that the Philistines are rulers over us? Catch that for a second. Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? Instead of coming alongside and joining them and saying, you know what, we've sinned against God. We we repent of this and we're going to trust the Lord to conquer our enemies. They go to the one whom God is raising up as a judge and a ruler over them in order to help them fight against the enemy. And they say to him, to Samson, don't you know? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so I have done to them. So they begin to talk, and Samson says, are you going to kill me? And they said, no, we won't kill you. He says, okay, bind me with rope and hand me over to the Philistines. And they do. And as they're handing him over to the Philistines, bound with rope, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson And he finds the jawbone of a donkey and he kills a thousand of the Philistine men with his jawbone. Now what are those 3,000 Israelites doing? See, folks, when, when God begins to work in our lives and God begins to call us to himself, when God begins uh, to call us to walk with him, to follow him, he's calling us into something that is going to be absolutely opposite of the culture around us. And and sometimes uh, it makes other people uncomfortable. When you personally begin to walk with God, I can guarantee you in the midst of, of your family or your friends, th- there are going to be those that are a little bit uncomfortable because they think, wait a second, what are you doing? Because they're under conviction about what you're doing and they have accepted the norm. They've accepted the standard. They have appeased the flesh. 
Folks, that's, there's nothing new under the sun. When we begin to walk with God, why are we surprised at the conflict that comes? Why are we surprised when there are people that come against? We're told all who desire to walk godly in Christ Jesus, what? Will be persecuted. And praise God, the Lord said, rejoice in it. Because by this you know that you are, in effect, my children. You're my sons. You're of me. Don't get caught off guard about it. When you begin to say things like, hey, the LGBT uh, agendas are not of God. Gay marriage is not of God. When, when you begin to say Christmas is about Christ, I mean, we could go into all kinds of different things. Guess what's going to happen? This culture raises up. It's going to snarl at us. And even believers are suddenly going to get a little bit uncomfortable. Oh, don't, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't stir it up. Boy, folks, we don't purposefully go to stir things up, but we do stand firm. And we call truth what it is. And we submit to the Lord. And we don't back down one step from what God has said. Amen? Amen. Right. I love this picture in Judges when Samson gets through. He's been in this battle. The Spirit of the Lord has come upon him. He's worn out. He's worn out. And he asks for water. And the Lord provides it. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Folks, battles in spiritual terms are difficult things. You, you get tired. But you know what? The Lord knows and he's always there to provide what is necessary. He's always there to provide what is needed for you, for me. What a picture of grace. In chapter 16, we're given a bit of Samson's weakness. It's kind of like uh, chapter, up to chapter 15, we're given this whole picture. We find out that he judges Israel for 20 years. But then we're given this little bit of a, a picture into Samson's weakness. We've already, to a degree, seen that his desire is to marry a Philistine girl. We saw how that worked out. And it says very specifically, she looked good to him. There's, a, there's an eye issue here. There's a lust issue here with Samson. And we find out that he is with a woman of ill repute. The Philistines surround the city. They find out that he's there. And so what does he do? You know, God's grace is amazing in this. He gives them the strength in order to take the city gates and just rip them out of their sockets. So, folks, this isn't your nice little garden gate. These are gates set up for the defense of an entire city. He lifts them up. And some people, there's a question about how far he actually took them. <laughs> the fact that he could pick them up is incredible, right? And he begins to walk. I believe that he walked about 45 minutes to a hill that is facing Hebron. And there's a picture of this. Hebron is part of Israel's cities, and there's a picture of him facing Israel, but turning his back on it, going back down into the valley of Sorek, where we find that he's with Delilah. Folks, we better be careful. Keep our faces towards Christ. Keep our eyes fixed on the Lord. Don't turn your back on the Lord. 
because God knows what's best. Don't go down into the valley. Stay facing the Lord. Delilah, we know this story well, I'm sure. She's given money by the Philistine rulers in order to find out the secret of Samson's strength. And through a, a series of episodes where he lies to her and he says, oh, do this and, 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 and then I'll lose my strength. And Phil, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he raises, gets up and they realize, no, that wasn't it. Delilah finally wears him out. And we finally get to the real secret, which is his hair. Obviously, it's the Lord, but as a Nazarite, all these other things had begun to take place, but the Lord was still working in his life, still giving him grace. But it's not until this last moment where we see that the Lord no longer comes upon Samson with strength. In chapter 16, verse 17, the Philistines come alongside, they, they gouge out his eyes, they enslave him. And there's a beautiful, beautiful picture that as he's in prison, he cries out to the Lord, and it says very specifically, his hair begins to grow back. Beautiful. You know, sometimes we trip and we stumble. As believers, we know the Lord never leaves us. We are his children, but maybe we need to get right with God. We need to cry out to the Lord. We need to confess sin, agree with him about our sin so that we can be restored into a right fellowship with the Lord. We never lose the relationship, but maybe we need to be restored into a right fellowship. Samson in Judges 16:28 is brought out by all the Philistines. They're having a party. They want to worship their god Dagon and thank their god Dagon for giving them victory over their enemy who is Samson, and Samson asks the little boy to put him in between the two pillars of their temple where they're having this idolatrous party. And he cries out to God in chapter 16, verse 28. Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, O God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. What does he do? God gives him the strength, pushes it over, and he kills more Philistines in that particular moment than in his entire life. When the word of God is not proclaimed or followed, walked in, Depravity of sin begins to set in. And throughout the rest of the book of Judges, not only in Samson do you see this kind of back and forth, accepting of the culture, being a part of the culture, being mixed in with the culture, yet God's grace in the midst of it, God working on the behalf of Israelites in the midst of it, you also begin to see the depravity. We get the story of Micah's idol. I mean, it's just disgusting. And the civil war that takes place as a result of it. Or the Levite's concubine, which is even, even just more disastrous in terms of the spiritual health and the spiritual depravity of the people living in Israel. In Proverbs chapter 29, 18, there's a wonderful verse, and I'm sure you've heard this. When there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, but happy is he who keeps the law. That word for vision doesn't mean, well, this is where we're going. This is what we got to do in order to get there. The word for vision means revelation. It's speaking of the word of God. When the word of God is not proclaimed, the people are unrestrained. When God's word is not being taught for what God's word says, when Christ is not being lifted up, when we're not walking by faith, when our trust and our hope is not in the Lord himself, 
And people begin to do what's right in their own eyes. It's a perfect picture of judges. Rather than having leaders that proclaim the word of God and people that are willing to follow, people began to do what is right in their own eyes and they accepted all the norms of their culture. They became so mixed in that the glory of God through them was not being revealed. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a great picture, and I read this to you last week, and I just think it's important to keep this in mind because these judges were not perfect. Samson clearly is not perfect, and yet he's a saved individual in the sense that he's looking forward to the coming of Christ. We know that faith and grace are all throughout the Bible. It doesn't matter what age you want to talk about. Salvation is by faith in Christ. It's by grace through faith. The writer of Hebrews says this, What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword from weakness, were made strong, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. That's speaking of the faith they had on a day-by-day basis. As they walked with God... God used them in mighty ways. Folks, God's at work all around us. Whether we can feel him, whether we can understand it all. And God is always working on our behalf. Remember, you go back to the beginning of the story of Samson. The Lord was seeking an opportunity to come against the Philistines. Spiritually speaking, God is always looking to purify us. He does not want us to settle for the norms of our culture. He wants us to be set apart and holy unto him so that we would walk with him so that the world would look at us and see the transformation God is accomplishing through us and then come to us and say, what is this hope that you've got? I don't have hope. You do. What is it? And we're ready to give an answer. We're ready to point them to Christ and say, oh, let me tell you, about my Lord. Let me tell you about Jesus. Well, in the midst of this, we get the story of Ruth. The Lord's always working to accomplish his purposes. He's not only working on our benefit, for our benefit, he's also always working to accomplish his purposes. In the book of Ruth, we're told that this story takes place during the time of the judges. Oh, it's so cool. It's almost like uh, the Lord allows us to see all this depravity and all these things that are going on and this mixing of the cultures and this acceptance of paganism. And he pulls the curtain apart and he spotlights this story of Ruth and Boaz. He says, I'm still at work. I'm still going to accomplish my purposes. The judges, and when you look at this map, you begin to realize they're all over. It's not just one centralized area. Right? It's not just in Washington, D.C. <laughs> it's all over the country. And you begin to realize that all this acceptance of paganism and the norms of the culture are all throughout. All the tribes are doing this. And in the midst of that, we get the curtains pulled back on a story that is beautiful 
in terms of its love story, in terms of God's redeeming ability for us. Book of Ruth is four chapters long. But in short, Ruth is the daughter-in-law of Naomi. Naomi's from Bethlehem in Judah. Naomi travels with her husband and her two sons to Moab because, again, we see God's judgment upon the people because they're not following the Lord. And they go to Moab in order to get away from the famine. And Naomi's husband and two sons die. It's tragic. Her sons had married two individuals, Ruth and Orpah. And when she decides to go back, she hears that things are good again in Bethlehem. Naomi does. The daughter-in-laws are going to go with her. But Naomi tells them, no, 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 you stay with your people. I don't have anything to offer you. Well, Orpah goes back. Ruth goes with her. And there's a beautiful expression of Ruth's love, not only for Naomi, but obviously of her acceptance of the Lord and the ways of Israel in chapter 1, verses 15 and through 17. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and me. What a beautiful expression of loyalty, of having received Naomi and Naomi's ways. Just like Rahab had trusted in the Lord, so too Ruth does. Naomi gets back, the people recognize her, and they go, what happened? And she says, the Lord's dealt bitterly with me. She actually tells him, call me Mara, which means bitterness. She says, I've, I've gone full and I've returned empty. They had nothing. See how this fits with your life. They had nothing. They had no ability for sustenance. They had no inheritance. They were destitute. They were poor. They were clearly without hope. Ruth is a foreigner. She doesn't even belong there. And yet, the Lord knows her and the Lord reaches down in order to guard her, protect her, and redeem her. It's a beautiful story. Ruth asks Naomi if she can go to the fields in order to glean after the gleaners. It's harvest time. They don't have anything. They don't have any husband. They don't have any family network, immediate family network in order to care for them. In Leviticus 19, we're told that those who are poor, the widows, the orphans, can follow after the gleaners and that they are not to go out and they're not to pick up all the extra that they didn't catch the first pass around, but they are to allow the poor, the widows, the orphans, even the foreigners to gather up that which is left, and Ruth goes and begins to do this. She ends up at Boaz's field. And later on, she finds out that Boaz is actually one of Naomi's relatives. Boaz comes to the field, and he asks who Naomi is. Naomi's younger than him. <laughs> we catch this? Evidently, Boaz's eye, he, he, you know, Ruth caught his eye. And he starts saying, well, who's she? And so they begin to tell him who she is. So he goes to, to Ruth and he says, don't go to another field to glean. You're protected here. I've already told my servants not to touch you. I, 
wants you to drink out of the jars that we have for water here and rest if you need to. And I want you to stay with my maids. You stay here. Ruth falls on her face before him and says, well, why have I found favor in your eyes being a foreigner? And his response is interesting because evidently he had been doing some background work to figure out who this girl is. And, she, and he tells her, well, because of all the good that you've done to Naomi and because you've left your people and because you've come here. See the righteousness in this? Israel was to be a light to the nations to proclaim the glory and the goodness and the kindness of God. They were not to get involved in all the things of the world. They were to be a people set apart in order to give a picture to the rest of the world of who God truly is. And in Boaz, you can see this. You're a foreigner. You've left your people. You've been good to Naomi. You come and I'll take care of you. In Ruth chapter 2, verse 12, it says, May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Isn't that beautiful? Under whose wings you have come to seek. He doesn't say, you've come to Israel in order to make sure everything's going good. You've come to seek refuge from the Lord. I love that. Well, the day goes on and he feeds her, gives her a wonderful meal. She's allowed to sit with the servants, and she's allowed to eat. Later on, she goes, and she continues to glean, and she brings back a portion to Naomi, who immediately recognized somebody somebody has been paying special attention to her because the amount that she comes back with is approximately 15 liters of grain, enough to help feed them, to bake bread, to help sustain them. And Naomi recognizes this, and Naomi's going, where did you get this? Where did you go? And so Ruth tells her about Boaz. Well, what we know is Ruth continues to go to the fields and glean. She continues throughout the harvest time in order to do this. And there comes a point at the end of this where Naomi says to Ruth, okay, I don't want to leave you without an inheritance. Boaz is one of our relatives. Here's what you're going to do. He'll go to sleep at his grain area, and I want you to go down, and I want you to lay at his feet, and I want you to take the corner of his cloak and cover yourself. And when he looks down and finds out that you're there, you tell him you are seeking protection from him because he is to be a kinsman redeemer. So she does. She goes down. She lays at his feet. Boaz is startled, wakes up, says, what are you here for? And she says, I've come to seek protection from you. (laughs) So Boaz says, okay, God bless you for not going to the younger men. (laughs) Thank you for coming to me. I'm going to do everything I can to take care of you. But there's one who's actually more immediate in line to be your kinsman redeemer than I am. I need to take care of this. Gives her some more uh, grain, sends her home, says don't tell anybody about it. The next day, Boaz is at the gate. And I love what Naomi says to Ruth. He will not rest until the matter is settled, right? It's great. You can just see Boaz running down to the gate. He grabs the elders. He finds where the other kinsman is, and he grabs him and sits him down and says, oh, by the way, right? Naomi's back, 
And there's a little matter about redeeming the land. She's interested in selling it. He says, great. He says, by the way, if you do that, you got to marry Ruth the Moabitess as well. He goes, not so great. Because my inheritance will be impacted if I do that. And so Boaz says to him, well, are you willing to allow me to be the kinsman redeemer? He says, yes. He takes his shoe off, hands it to him in the witness of all the elders. And so the matter is settled. Boaz ends up marrying Ruth and becomes her kinsman redeemer. Somebody who was destitute, a foreigner, had no place in the land of Israel, but had come to seek refuge under the mighty shadow, the wings of the Lord God Almighty. Now is married to Boaz. Boaz and she have a son. They name that son Obed. And guess what? Obed is the grandfather of who? King David. The whole point of the book of Ruth in terms of being the kinsman redeemer is God knows exactly where we are. And even though we don't have anything and even though we're destitute and even though we're lost in so many ways, God knows who we are and he begins to be our redeemer. And at the very end of the book of Ruth, we find that God has been working all along in the midst of all this nonsense with the judges and this paganism and the settling for things and God is still working to accomplish his purpose because it is through Boaz and Ruth that we have King David and it is through King David that we have whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a bit out of time. Some of you are way too aware of that. (laughs) Let me just give you a couple takeaways, okay? Transformed, not conformed. We are to be transformed. We are not to be conformed to this world. We're to be transformed by Christ, not conformed to the ways of the world. How's that taking place? Or are we being pressed into the mold of this world? God is able. God is able. What excuses are we coming up with as if somehow God can't accomplish what he said he would? What excuses do we have to say in effect, well, that's for somebody else to do, not me, because I'm too weak, because I'm whatever. Are we trusting the Lord because he is able? And let me ask you this. Are we looking for God Are we looking for God in every area of our lives, in all the details of our lives? Every day, are we looking for how the Lord is at work? Because guess what? The Lord is at work all around us, whether we feel it, see it, understand it. He's always working on our behalf, and he's always working in order to accomplish his purposes. The question is, are we looking for him in the midst of it? And are we seeking to say, yes, Lord, I'll walk with you. I'll follow you. And lastly, in the midst of this society, folks, take hope. God is at work. God is at work. And the question is, in the midst of our society, is God being revealed through us? 
is the hope that we have in Christ, is the transformation that God is accomplishing through us as we yield to him, is the renewing of our minds as we get into the word of God and we begin to think differently than the ways of this world and we begin not to accept the things of this world. We begin to walk with God. All of those things, are they be- as they're beginning to take place, we have a hope that God is accomplishing his purposes in the midst of this society. Or have we somehow lost hope? Have we checked out? Have we said, oh, it's, it's for other people to do? Or are we willing to say, Lord, here we are. Use us because you're able, because you're mighty, because you're good, because you're good. Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.